0: All right, well, good morning. I'm Pastor Tommy. I'm glad that you are joining us here this morning. So, whether this is your first time or your hundredth time joining us, I'm just really glad that you're here, that you're worshiping with us together this morning. We are a few weeks into working through the book of 1 Corinthians, which is this letter that's written by Paul the Apostle to a church that's in Corinth. And so far in this letter, Paul has spent a lot of time pointing out this major fracture that's in the church, it's a fracturing within their fellowship which is made evident by divisions that are popping up in their church. So there are people who are taking sides, they're quarreling with one another, they're they're fighting amongst themselves. I think to put it into some context today, like there's a lot of shade being thrown back and forth, a lot of passive-aggressive emails, snarky comments and texts that are being made. People are openly making fun of each other and kind of tearing each other down, especially in church meetings. It's starting to get pretty ugly in Corinth. And the reason for this, as Paul explains, is because the church is buying into the cultural framework of the town that they live in, in Corinth. And it's causing them to interact really just as merely a human institution as opposed to a holy house of the Lord filled with saints. You see, the wisdom in Corinth, uh, the framework that, that they operate under there, was that if you were smart, if you were eloquent, if you were wealthy, and if you were successful, then you had it all. And those were the ultimate things that people ascribed toward. Uh, professional competence and social popularity and financial stability were, were the ultimates. It was kind of just the way of Corinth to be competent and popular and wealthy. But the problem is, is they didn't realize that the wisdom of the world that they were following is actually foolishness. That in reality, when you think about it, the things of this world that we often rely on and we often build our lives around don't actually truly satisfy us. They don't last forever. And even as you think about the competency and the wisdom of man, like it is insufficient to remedy what is an eternally disastrous condition. What I mean by that is no matter how smart you are, how rich you are, how success, successful you are, whether you lived in Corinth or here today, like we still all die. There's nothing that we can do to solve that problem on our own, no matter how much money people are throwing at that problem. And the gospel message, then, that, that Jesus came to save needy sinners, is kind of a really a, a sad gospel message. It is the opposite of this very optimistic wisdom of the world for Corinth. The world sees this gospel as foolishness. They'll look at the Christian message and say, that's silly, um, it's kind of weird. Honestly, it's a little pathetic that you're that needy. But we, along with Paul, know that the gospel is the power to save and to bring reconciliation between God and us and to solve that problem, to allow eternal life for all those who hear and who believe. This is true wisdom. This is what Paul is trying to exhort the church at Corinth to live by, not the wisdom of the world. So we today need to hold true to this wisdom, this gospel framework for how we view the world holding firm to our faith as, as we navigate through life, and being diligent not to slip back into the wisdom of the world around us that constantly calls us and beckons us back. This is critical for the maturity of a Christian. But last week in chapter 3, Paul laments that the church is still immature. Like, they're, they're still not there yet. They're, they're not living lives that are rooted in this wisdom of the world, but they're acting like children in the wisdom of the world. I'm sorry. They're not living in the wisdom of God. They're living in the wisdom of the world, the, the way of Corinth. And so last week we saw uh, how Paul kind of rounds out this three-chapter exhortation against divisions that happen in the church. What he does is he drills down into the source of all of their divisions and all of their fracturing within the fellowship and with one another. And the heart of all of that division is pride. It's pride in oneself. It's taking pride in the uh, allegiances or the affiliations that, that we take ownership of. And Paul exhorts them by saying that to live in such pride is really childish and immature because it, that's living in the flesh like you're not a Christian any longer, but you ought to be living in the spirit. It's also ignorant uh, of really understanding how laboring for God actually works because in that laboring, it's, the, it's God who gives growth, not man. He talks about how it's actually just kind of nonsensical, like we don't actually see the ultimate fruit of all of our labor until the end, so it doesn't even make sense for us to to judge one another. And then he talks about how this ultimately can lead, the divisions can lead to the destruction of God's church, which God absolutely hates, and that's articulated there. And finally, he just says, it's really silly. In the last verses of chapter 3, Paul talks about how we have everything in Christ, and if we have everything, then what is there to boast in? We're all on the same page. And so while chapter 3 is where Paul makes his final case against division, it's this seed of division, which Alden talked about last week, which is pride in our hearts, which he continues on about this morning. And throughout this entire letter, we'll see how pride is the bedrock of just a whole slew of other fractures within the church at Corinth. So let's jump right into the text this morning. We've got a lot to work through. Verse 1, this is how one should regard us. As servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time. Before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then... Each one will receive his commendation from God. So one of the reasons why the Corinthians are divided into different camps that are based on the different leaders within the church is because they actually had a wrong view of their leaders. And so, yes, leaders do have authority over the members of the church, but as a church, they do not exist to serve their leaders, And this makes sense that some of them might have this incorrect view then and now, since much of the world operates with us serving under those who are above us. But the gospel is different. It flips everything on its head. And as Jesus came not to be served but to serve— Leaders in the church are commissioned to not be served by its members, but to dedicate their time, their energy, uh, their resources, uh, their their very lives to serve the members of the church. This is the way that Paul wants the Corinthians to view himself and Apollos. But it's also how they ought to view other leaders within their congregation, not as rock stars to be fans of, not not as kings to worship or masters to serve under, but as verse 1 says, this is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Simply by having an incorrect understanding of what it means to lead in a church can cause a lot of problems in a church. If we think about leadership as, as meaning, oh man, those are the people that get honor and prestige and glory, they, they get people serving them and loving them, and this is how the people in Corinth would have understood what it meant to be a leader in the church, then people would aspire toward leadership in all, for all the wrong reasons. And church leadership then would become kind of a corporate ladder, where we would compete with one another, we would kind of elbow and, and pry for that top spot. But that is not the gospel. It's not the way of God. To lead as a Christian means to serve. And what we might think is kind of the top echelon of church leadership is actually organizationally and structurally at the bottom as they serve everybody else in the church. Now, having this incorrect view of leadership in the church might not make you ambitiously like vie for that top spot, but it can lead to resentment and bitterness, even distrust in leadership. Because if we think that our leaders are there just, just for the prestige and for the glory, just to get some pats on the back and to be served by all the members in the church, like, it makes sense why there might be some hardness toward leaders in the church, some unwillingness to listen or follow. But let me tell you, Mercy House, this is not how the kingdom of God operates. and It is not how things work here at Mercy House. Mercy House, it is my responsibility and the responsibility of the elders to serve God you and that's literally in my job description like we don't toil and wrestle and study and pray and teach and spend time counseling invest our extra time our resources our lives the lives of our families just to get some commendations from the church we're not here to amass a personal following or the social perks of telling people that we're leaders in the church which there aren't any We don't do it for the money. Like your elders don't get paid And full disclosure. I took a pay cut in order to be in full-time ministry. So on paper, like this was a terrible career move based on the wisdom of the world. Mercy House, your leaders don't lead because of the traditional perks of worldly leadership. We lead because we've answered the call of God to lay down our lives and to serve you and to steward the gospel for you. And all of this for your benefit and for your good. This is why we labor This is our biblical role and responsibility, and it's also our heart, which is what we want to articulate to you. This is also what Paul is talking about to the Corinthians. Paul goes on to relay the importance of faithfulness in leaders, and this is why. It's actually a requirement, as he says there, and, and this is speaking to the importance of longevity and steadfastness in the life of a believer who is a leader. And Corinth ought to be very careful not to follow just a flash in the pan, someone who's very talented and gifted, but also consider somebody who's, who's uh, actually demonstrated that, that they're committed and unwavering, not perfect, but also not flighty. Anyone who's ever been in any form of leadership knows that individual trials and hardships aren't that big of a deal. Like, it doesn't really test a leader. You can white knuckle through any problem but it's endurance over time of many trials and hardships that reveals your character. When we run out of rope, what are the things that we grasp for? And so understanding that the race that we run as Christians here on earth is a marathon, it's not a sprint, it means that leaders in the church must demonstrate faithful endurance if they're to lead others in this long-standing race through life. And so divisions can sprout up in a church when we have the wrong understanding of leadership or when our leaders have the wrong understanding of what it means to lead. But what he's saying here is leaders and all of their work and all of our work, the leaders that are in this church are meant to ultimately serve the church. But that doesn't mean that leaders are lesser or or inferior to all of the other people in the church. For as many people in Corinth who were treating their leaders as rock stars and creating little cults of personalities and kind of pitting themselves against one another, there were others who saw these disheveled, soft-spoken, insignificant, uh, inconsequential people as people that they don't really want to follow. And what happened was when they used the wisdom of the world to grade and evaluate their leaders, Paul in particular did not score very high based on the Corinthian standards. But look what it says in verse 3. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. So in short, Paul earlier is saying, don't worship the leaders. Like, the leaders are there to serve you. And now what he's saying is, well, don't judge and belittle the, 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 the servants who are your leaders because it's only God who judges so Paul not only says, don't judge me, but he also says, I don't even judge myself. It's important for us to realize that judgment is a fruit of pride. Remember, pride is that seed that causes all sorts of other fractures within the church. And when we judge one another, it comes from a place of sinful and broken pride inside of our hearts. And here's why. Like, when we make judgments, we take it upon ourselves to have the competency and the authority to assess someone's value. Some of us might wonder, like, what's the big deal? Well, the big deal is that we don't have the competency or the authority to assess the value of a person. Let me ask you a question. Any professional figure skaters here? None? Okay, awesome. So we can all agree that there's no one here who has the competency and the knowledge and the authority to judge a pair's figure skating event, right? We agree? Not once if you agree couple of you. Okay, so no one here has any, any reason that if we were all at the Olympics two weeks ago and we're watching the pairs figure skating event to then slide into the judge's booth and open up a scorecard and start writing down notes and then submitting that to the event, right? Like that would be ridiculous. It would be absolutely prideful for any of us to think that we have any say to do something like that, but that's exactly what's happening when we take the seat of judgment and judge and evaluate a person based on what we can observe about them. Paul is saying here, I don't even judge myself. To be fair, no one knows Paul like Paul does, so he is the most qualified out of anybody in the world to judge himself. Yet, he still won't pronounce judgment on himself. Verse 4, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. So he's saying, look, I honestly don't see anything egregiously wrong with me. Like for Paul, if there's sin in his life, he's going to repent of it. If there are areas of weaknesses in his life, he's going to lean into Christ in them. If there's temptation, then he's going to flee. But even in all of those, he's like, but I don't know. Who knows? I don't know what's in my heart. And that's why he defers to the one who does know him. The second half of verse 4 there, it is the Lord who judges me. See, judgment is reserved for God gauging the effectiveness and the fruit of a person and equating that to their value is not for us to do. Now, this doesn't mean that we should, shouldn't evaluate things in our life. Thinking about like a, a year-end review. We just had burly, man. So we did sit down and say, was that effective? Should we have done the things that we should have done? Should we change anything for the future? As a family, we sit down and set goals for the year, spiritual goals, practical goals. And at the end, we evaluate and say, hey, are we on track with the things that we want to do? If not, then should we change them? Like, that's not what Paul is saying you shouldn't do. But what Corinth is doing is, is a step beyond fruitful evaluation. It's evaluation and then the assigning of value. It's the assessing and the ordering of people on, on kind of like a mental totem pole based on perceived effectiveness or fruit in that person's life, saying, man, that person is is really high up on the pecking order, because look how fruitful their ministry is. Oh, this person's, they hardly even come to church. They don't read their Bible. They they don't do anything, so I'm going to kind of mentally put them down here. Like, that's what Paul's saying, don't do. The question is, why? Well, I think at the end of the day, we don't have any business doing that, any more than any of us have any business being a part of the IOC and grading and judging a pair's figure skating event. Look at verse 5. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. We shouldn't judge others because we don't know what's in people's hearts. We don't even know what's fully in our own heart. You hear David kind of sharing the sentiment in Psalm 19, verse 12. He says, Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. So even he's like, God, like, forgive me of my sin, the sin that I know, and also the sins that like, I don't even know exist in my heart, the things that are hidden from me. And the reason is because God doesn't just see the outward appearances and, and the external actions of our lives, He sees into the deep, complex motivations of the heart, which are attached and have uh, equal standing to the things that we actually do. So, God can do that, but we don't have that superpower. Like, personally, I can't tell if the person who's letting me go ahead of them in a line at the grocery store is genuinely doing that out of a heart of kindness or if they're like secretly plotting to murder me. I don't know. Like, that's extreme. But I also don't know, like when I see somebody and, and, and they're like scowling and grimacing and they're being a little bit short with me, like I don't know if whether or not in their hearts, like they are suffering and they, and they are like constantly praying as they lovingly carry the burdens of those in their lives. I can't see that. I don't know what's in their heart. Our ability to judge one another and even ourselves is wholly inadequate. We are not competent enough, nor do we, do we have the authority To judge, and when we do judge, what we do is we pridefully assume both of those things. And so we leave the judging to God. Ultimately, this should actually give us a lot of freedom and peace. One reason why is because we can rest knowing that there will be a judge, and that judge will be supremely fair and supremely just. This should be an encouragement to those of us specifically who are members of a church community. And this is I, I, this idea that church leaders are held accountable. The church is not like a special domain where leaders have, have total authority but no accountability. Like, we as leaders will have to stand and account for everything that we've ever done, everything that we've ever said, just like everybody else, not just in front of the courts of men, who can judge so far with with the natural human limitations, but we will be laid bare before God. Everything we've ever said, everything we've ever done, but also every single heart motivation that lay behind each action that we took. And then Jesus, in verse 5, second part there, will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. We don't need to bear the burden of having to judge people and hold people accountable because we know that judgment will come from God Himself. If you're a Christian, this should also bring you immense comfort, knowing that no man, no woman has any real power of judgment over you. So listen to me people will misjudge you, Uh, you will be misunderstood. The intentions of your heart are going to be misinterpreted, and there are going to be times when you try your absolute best to love someone, to serve someone, and what they'll be uh, seeing in you is your absolute worst. And so hear me when I say this, that God alone has the definitive and final word on you, not your friends, not your coworkers or your parents or even your spouse or your boss or your professor or your coach, like not even you. Not even you. Some of us need to hear this. You ought to stop judging yourself and and crushing yourself under the weight of yourself. May we be so rooted in our identity as God's beloved children who have had our broken, sinful actions covered by his grace that the harshest and the most unfair judgment that we receive just rolls off of our backs because we know whose we are. And whose we are is the God who truly knows who we are in our deepest areas of our hearts and still loves us in that moment. See, this idea of final judgment of our hearts should not induce fear for those who are in Christ. As Christians, we have assurance that we will finish this race by God's grace. The, the, the judgment that we experience that Paul is talking about is not to take our good and our bad deeds and kind of weigh them out on the scales, and if you're good enough, and you get to come into heaven. Like, that's not the gospel. The gospel is that those of us who have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ are, are sealed by the Holy Spirit. We are born again into new and eternal life in Christ. Nothing changes that. But as we saw last week, there is further eternal reward and blessing for how our faithfulness and our endurance plays out in our lives while we're still in the flesh. And rewards are, are gonna be fairly given to us based on our obedience to God's word. Not just in our external actions, but also in the motivations of our hearts they're connected to those things. And so if you're a Christian and you are like worried, like I just wanna spell out what the worst case scenario for you is. The worst case scenario is that you die and you face Jesus at this moment of judgment and your life and your heart are laid completely bare before him. And it becomes evident that every single good thing that you've ever done has actually been tainted and originated in a heart of selfishness and sin. And so no rewards, no angel bucks or holy rupees or whatever denomination of heavenly reward God decides to use. I'm not sure what that is, but Jesus is going to look at you, someone who doesn't have any rewards, and he's going to say, because of your faith and your trust in me, you are covered by my good works, not yours. So come on in to the eternal kingdom and experience fellowship with me and the fulfillment of all of your desires and all of your longings forever. That is the best worst-case scenario there is. And so take heart as you read this, my brothers and sisters. To recap this section, Paul's saying let's have a right understanding of church leaders, not worshiping them and creating allegiances that divide, not judging them, not judging others, not even judging yourself, which all creates divisions within the church, but trust God who has the competency and the authority to judge each of us rightly. Look at verse 6. Paul says, "...I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written." That none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that we that, that you did not receive? If then you did receive it, why do you boast as you did not receive it? Paul here is saying that he and Apollos have been modeling how one ought to lead. By serving the members of the church and by stewarding the gospel for all of them and doing so without judging the worth and the value of those under their care. And we see the second half of verse 6 there uh, that there's an exhortation to quote, not go beyond what is written. What does that mean? Traditionally, the interpretation of what is written is, is in reference to the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, that they would have had access to as those are interpreted through the lens of the gospel uh, that they're experiencing and and through the apostles. And so the purpose of Paul exhorting them to not go beyond what is written or create any more religion that is there is so that uh, none of you may be puffed up in in favor against one another. And so there's something that's happening in Corinth that as they add to the written word of God and, and to the gospel that's causing them to be prideful against one another the principle here is that there is no additional gospel than what's been revealed. There's no second tier of enlightenment beyond the basic and simple gospel. And this is something that Paul talks about a lot in chapter 2, and he basically breaks it down to this idea of Christ and him being crucified. And so that's the simple gospel, and ironically, it was done with the intention of preventing exactly what's happening here. And the Corinthians have added additional points of evaluation and additional metrics of value, which, which are informed by their broken cultural worldview, the, the wisdom of the world. And that goes beyond the gospel. And as they measure themselves and each other by these standards, it leads them to grow prideful and puffed up against one another. And so, what we need to understand is that when we go beyond what's written, Beyond the gospel when we ascribe value and praise to extracurricular spiritual things it can create a grounds for boasting If we think that our position in church or our position before God is determined by how much we pray or how loud we sing in worship or how many hours we devote to the church or how much we give or how many Bible verses we've memorized or how many Christian podcasts we listen to, like if those things are things that we ultimately praise and see as the basis for evaluating our spiritual wellness and our spiritual prosperity, then we will be prone to puffing ourselves up when we do those things well. We'll we'll experience a false, prideful confidence in our own ability, forgetting that if there's anything good in us, it's actually by the mercy and grace of God, who, we saw this last week, Philippians 2, verse 13, works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Like, that's God working in you. Now, all these things that I mentioned are important fruits that ought to flow out of, of the life of a believer, and we should desire to grow in our Bible memorizing and, and, and our, we should be reading the Bible and, and singing loudly and all these things. But these are just fruits. They're not the basis of our faith. The basis of our faith is the gospel. Not gospel and something else, but just the gospel. And so corporately, we might be tempted to equate certain metrics of how healthy or good our church is and feel puffed up for all the wrong reasons. We might be tempted to be puffed up in how awesome our worship is, how many college students we have coming to our services, how many men just came to our retreat, how many flat panel TVs are on our walls. If we ascribe ultimate value to any of these metrics, that's going beyond what's written, and that's not the gospel. It's adding to the gospel. If we do this, we can be puffed up when those metrics look great. So we have 100 kids downstairs, that's awesome, look at us, we're doing great. We have 20 screens all around the church, that's, that's amazing. We have 1,000 people in this building, they can't even get in here. We must be doing really good as a church. But that's incorrect, that's wrong, that's a flawed value system and rating system that we could use. Conversely, when those numbers look bad, and based on this flawed and, 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 and broken rating system, we can grow discouraged and even depressed We can feel crushed when we feel like we've failed because as individuals, we're not measuring up spiritually to those around us or measuring up to our spiritual standards, but also as a church, when things don't appear the way we think a successful church should look like, it could diminish our joy and discourage us. What Paul will continue exhorting the Corinthians toward is understanding that it never goes beyond the gospel. And this is why Paul came purposefully preaching a simple message of Christ and him crucified because that is all that is needed to build the church upon. Christ and him crucified is the foundation for our faith and it's also the foundation for our church. So we need to be careful as a church to not go beyond the gospel. As, As much as we can be puffed up toward one another, we can also corporately feel puffed up as a church as we compare ourselves to the churches around us. And so if you're visiting right now, I'm really glad that you're here joining us. If you're trying to decide a a church in this area to call home, I want to encourage you to to be prayerful and discerning in that process. But please don't come to Mercy House because you think that it's better than the other churches in ways that go beyond what's written, beyond the gospel. Please don't come here because you think that the, the things here are done better than the other churches, that we are a better church. Come here because we preach the gospel. Like, that's why we want you to come. And if you are a member and if you're a regular attender, don't stay here because you feel that this church is better than the other churches around here based on whatever extra biblical criteria you might be using. Stay here because you have chosen this church to be your family and, and that we faithfully preach the gospel week in and week out. And sure, as, as a group, as a church, we should be able to appreciate and be thankful for the things that, awesome things that God has done here. And it's okay to have preferences. We're not saying that you can't, but if we as a church ever feel like or think or articulate that we are the best church in the area, if we feel superior and puffed up because of our worship or our ministry or just some of the vibes that we've got going on here, like God help us, because we, we will have gone beyond the gospel at that point. And we, as your leaders, will have failed you in a pretty catastrophic way and led you astray. This is, in part, why Paul and Apollos take ownership of, of this and, and work so hard to model this out for them. So, as church pastors, like they don't feud uh, amongst each other, they don't compare church spaces or attendance at their churches. They're, they're not boasting about anything in their ministries. Notice scripture never talks about like, how many people were involved in the churches. We have no idea how many people were a part of these different fellowships. If 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 they didn't grab onto the kind of the ethos of Corinth, and, and if, if they were able to kind of step outside of the measuring system that Corinth used, then they would have been able to, to, to work together harmoniously. They wouldn't be tempted um, to have the wisdom of the world and to grade and evaluate and, and place judgment based on some of the fruit and the effectiveness of what they were seeing in those churches. And Paul spent these three chapters just trying to dismantle and show how childish and insignificant and ignorant and nonsensical and foolish it is to be puffed up against each other in pride. Paul and Apollos might fight with each other, but they don't. They they, they don't feud over these things like little children. Mercy House, one of the realities that they know and that that we need to hold on to is that we have nothing to be puffed up about or to boast in. Look at what Paul says in verse 7. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Paul begins with a bit of a sarcastic tone here, and it's going to continue in the next few verses, but he starts here by saying effectively, um, are things any different for for you than they are for Apollos and I? And see, verse 7 might be the most important verse in this passage because it's the crux of Paul's teaching point. He asks the Corinthians, what do you have that you did not receive? Meaning, what good thing in your life was not gifted to you? see the wisdom of the world says that we earn things we we work for things we we pay for things with our own money we bless ourselves and the things that we have the sweet awesome good things in our lives are actually a direct fruit of our labors which is true in part but there's a larger reality that that the wisdom of god says you see this in james chapter 1 and we talked about this earlier this year verse 16 do not be deceived my beloved brothers Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Every blessing that you and I experience in life is a gift from God. You might be wondering, what are you talking about, Tommy? I I bought this absurdly overpriced cell phone with my own hard-earned money. Like this, I did this. Well, okay. Well, how did you earn the money in order to pay for that phone? Well, maybe you had a job interview and you were the best candidate, you were super qualified and so you deserved the job that you got and then you did some work and they paid you some money and then you were able to afford and buy that phone. But how were you given the opportunity to be educated and prepared for that interview that you did so well in? Like, uh, who gave you the mental capacity to learn letters and facts and math in school? Who made, you, uh, made sure that you had adequate food and clean water all growing up? Who sheltered you as you were growing up? Who guarded you and sustained your life until this very moment? Like, who gave you lungs that work and a heart that beats? Are we going to take credit for knitting ourselves together in our mother's womb and then choosing, like, which family we would be born into, into which era and history that we wanted to live in? I mean, so when we understand these things, like what good can any of us actually and honestly take credit for in our lives? And the answer to Paul's rhetorical question is nothing. Like our resources are a gift from God. Our ability to work is a gift from God. Our ability to think and to even process and talk is a gift from God. Our ability to breathe. The oxygen that is in the room that you are breathing. Each contraction of your heart muscles to sustain life and blood in and your bones and, and bodies is the gift that we receive from God. And so, verse 7, second half there, if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? If everything is a gift from God, there is no basis for us to boast in anything as if we could lay claim for being responsible for its fruition in our lives. This is the main point of pride for the Corinthians. See, they, they were taught, and they bought into the worldview that their status, their wealth, and then it bleeding into their spiritual life and their faith, that that their spiritual prosperity and value within the church are things that they could actually lay claim on. And these became reasons to be prideful and to boast against one another. But it doesn't make logical sense. If everything is gifted to them, it just doesn't make sense. Look at what Paul says next in verses 8 through 13. He, He gets pretty sarcastic here as he further exposes their nonsensical and their childish behavior of pride. Look at verse 8. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings and would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. What Paul is doing here is he's kind of sarcastically taking on their worldview. He's, he's saying, look at all of you guys. You, you already have everything that you want. You've become rich. You've become kings. If you want to become a Christian, you shouldn't do it to get more things. You already have everything you want. He says, I actually wish that we were also ruling alongside you as kings, But then he goes on to contrast his own experience along with the other apostles. And it's important to realize here that what Paul is doing is he's evaluating himself and the apostles using the Corinthian worldview. He's saying, based on what the world values, in the eyes of the world, in the eyes of the Corinthians, we're like men sentenced to death. Why would you ever want to be like us? We're the laughingstock. We're seen as weak. We're seen as foolish. He's he's trying to confront them with this question. If the Corinthians are doing seemingly great by by their standard of evaluation, what does that say about the apostles who are not? This is a question for us too. If we think that physical security or financial prosperity is at all a legitimate measurement of spiritual health, then what does that say about faithful ministers of the gospel who are poor, who are malnourished, who don't have like a retirement fund or an emergency fund or like who don't have a contingency plan and paul and the apollo's like they didn't have a plan b they didn't have like this 20-year vision for their lives which included retirement at the end like they weren't debating whether or not to have a traditional or a roth ira they weren't hedging to minimize their losses in case this gospel slash church planning thing didn't work out for them and paul is not saying that in order to be a true christian you need to not plan for the future Or or that you need to be poor and homeless and frowned upon to be a real Christian. That's not what he's saying. But this is a very important lesson, specifically for the Corinthians, that further exposes their broken understanding of what spiritual prosperity and spiritual health looks like. Paul, in essence, is saying, hey, Corinth, if you think that spiritual prosperity and spiritual health means being rich, powerful, secure, and valuable— Then how come we're poor, weak, homeless, and seen as the scum of the world and the refuse of all things? Like, can you make sense of that, Corinth? Now, he's really not trying to guilt them or to be condescending to them. Look at verse 14. Paul says, "'I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel.'" I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. In these verses here, we get to see Paul's heart and motivation behind all of his writing. Paul takes a step back and and he gently reminds that he's not like this angry, disappointed boss, but he is a loving and caring father. And they are like his children, and he wants what's best for them. Paul's use of the term father is not meant here as like a flex of his authority or his power. This verse has often been taken out of context throughout the history of the church to give license to church leaders to practice inappropriate power uh, and influence and authority over people within the church. What Paul means when he refers to himself as their father is simply that he was the one that originally shared the gospel to them. And as a leader, he's taking ownership and responsibility for their spiritual well-being. Like, what a gracious thing to do. Like, here is Paul, a, a man who is adopting one of the messiest churches in the, in the first century, maybe in the history of all churches, to take care of and take ownership of as his own child. He says, I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel, and like how children uh, learn and grow through watching and imitating their parents, so Paul encourages the Corinthians to do the same, to imitate him in his faith and in his life. And this process of observing and learning is critical for Christian discipleship. It was extremely important for the Corinthians, who didn't have the Bible as we had it today, so they relied on the apostles and their teaching and, and the modeling of what it looks like to be a regenerate christ-following christian and to live out the gospel but this is just as important for us today a leadership in the church is a very biblical concept and this is why leaders must be faithful as we saw earlier in verse two this is why qualifications for elders in the church which are in places like first timothy three and titus chapter one and first peter chapter five have a big focus on kind of the external fruit and the works that come out of a genuine internal faith in christ and not only because having consistent orthodoxy and orthopraxy, that, that, that is right theological thinking and right theological living, is a sign of genuine faith, which we want our church leaders to have signs of genuine faith, it also is because everyone is watching and everyone is learning as they observe. And this is uh, a type of leadership and discipleship that is not reserved for the apostles and the elders And there's a call to all of us as followers of Christ to model Christ-like living, knowing that there are those around us who are watching us and who are imitating us. This This doesn't mean that you have to be perfect, but it should mean that by God's grace, you are striving toward perfection. It doesn't mean that you have to have it all together, but it does mean that by the supernatural working of the Holy Spirit in you, like your life is transforming toward wholeness and holiness, at our men's retreat last weekend, I, um, I pulled some older guys uh, uh, to me at the end, and we had a little conversation. I want to tell you what I told them. What I told them was, like, I don't know exactly when, old, uh, like, young men and young women um, become older men and older women, um, but some of you have made that transition, Like some of you have have made it from like you are the younger people in the church and now you're one of the older ones. And especially here at this church because our church is so young on average. And so I want to embolden you and empower you to consider that you are an example of Christ to the younger generation in this church family. And age has nothing to do with it. I'm not trying to call you old. But many of you are now older than when you first started coming here at Mercy House. And I think that for some of you, I want to challenge you to take the step of taking some ownership of some of the spiritual children that are here in this space. That is what biblical discipleship looks like. Many of us who have been at this church for a long time have not had the luxury of having spiritual mothers and fathers. Our church is demographically young. Paul himself didn't have a spiritual father. He was like an OG spiritual father. But now you can offer what you maybe never had to this next generation of people in our church. So I I wanna just leave that to you and pray about that and just say, like, let those of us who are mature, like, let us think this way, and if in anything else, like, God is gonna reveal that to you and show you what it looks like to be an active disciple maker in our church. Let's read these last verses and finish up for the day. Verse 18. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? Here we get one final exhortation before we move on to the next uh, section of his letter. There are some in Corinth who are going to hear what Paul's saying, and they're going to humbly receive it. And there are others who are kind of like a rebellious teenager who have been and will continue to dismiss Paul. And these people will look at, at Paul and they'll continue to be puffed up and they'll see him with the wisdom of the world, their broken Corinthian worldview, and they'll look at Paul and see him as someone who is weak, who is feeble, and who is inconsequential. And they'll dismiss him. And to them, Paul says, oh, I'm coming. Like, Lord willing, I'm, I'm going to be there soon and then we'll see how weak and feeble I am. Like, the confidence, though, that Paul has is not in himself, but in the power of God and the gospel. And he loves them, which means that God is going to give them an option. In verse 21, like, they can either receive what he's saying and humble themselves in their pride and experience a gentle Paul when he comes, or they can continue being arrogant and boastful, and he'll come in the power of God to correct them. Like, it's up to them. This is a parenting moment. And what we see here is serious love. And serious discipleship from Paul, which he models for us. There are real implications and practical consequences to how they decide to respond to his words. But whether the Corinthians get it or not, Paul is committed to coming. As their spiritual father, he's going to be there regardless. And he will correct them with a rod. A rod is used to, to correct sheep, like the staff and the rod. But there's also an option for Paul to be there rejoicing and encouraging them with a spirit of gentleness. Mercy House, here's the primary takeaway this morning. Correcting pride in our hearts is paramount in healing and preventing fractures. Fractures in ourselves, but then also fractures within our church. It's this posture of pride that leads to so many areas of brokenness and sin. And Paul wants to correct this at its core. This is, this is where he's starting to expose in these first four chapters of 1 Corinthians. And God's word calls us as well to humble ourselves. One of the best ways that we can humble ourselves week in and week out is actually through the taking of communion together. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and broke it saying, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. When we take communion together, we remember that it's not the gospel plus something else. Like our salvation is not in Christ and our ability to be holy. It's not in Christ and our ability to be disciplined and leave lives of obedience. Like we are incredibly humbled when we take communion because we are reminded that our work, our best work was not enough and is not enough. But praise God, our salvation was purchased not by our work and our deeds, but by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's what we remember when we take communion. And as we take communion together, we're also reminded that we, together, are brothers and sisters. We've all been made blameless and holy together. All of us have been given the gift of grace and mercy. That's something that we all have been given. Like, there is no grounds for being puffed up. There's no grounds for boasting. There is no grounds for legitimate division in the house of God. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are our loving Father who sometimes admonishes us and rebukes us and corrects us, not out of a place to just make us feel bad, but because you desire, like a loving father, to see us at our best, for us to grow and mature into your likeness. So yeah, we confess that it can be hard to receive correction. God, we confess that we are prone to pride. I know I am. God, I confess that my default broken nature goes toward trying to evaluate the people and the things around me in ways that are just inappropriate and not helpful. And even those of us, Lord, who judge ourselves, Lord, would you give us peace from having to do that, God? Would we be able to rest in you, a God who knows us fully, our thoughts, our intentions, along with our actions? And God, you see us at our absolute worst, but in that place, You love us. You have declared us innocent because the work you've done on the cross. Lord, thank you that we have peace and shalom with you. God, thank you that we are free from the judgment of the world. God, help us to not judge. Help us not judge ourselves. Help us to bring the gospel to the world. Free from judgment, God. Help us to do this. And so, Lord, I pray now that as we take communion, would you humble us, God? Would we humble ourselves before your mighty hand? God, let us worship you with our whole hearts. We thank you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.